Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And in honor of our first episode about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, we are getting way out of our comfort zones to talk about something that we have absolutely never considered before. (laughs) You know, Marcel, they can see the topic of the podcast just right in the episode title, right? Oh, shoot. Okay. All right. Fine. We're talking about pedagogy, aka teaching, aka the thing that both of us do for our regular jobs. <laughs> okay. But before that, we are going to stretch outside of our comfort zones for real, this time in the sorting chat. Hannah, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, Marcel, I want to talk about tattoos very specifically because I have not had a tattoo in over a year and I am (laughs) jonesing hard. (laughs) But I was also thinking last night as I was finishing reading this book at midnight, yeah, Mm. I prep in advance, what can I say, that at a certain point in my life, I came very, very close to getting a time turner tattoo. Oh. <laughs> and that I am kind of feeling a little bit like I dodged a bullet mm. in terms of getting a Harry Potter tattoo, which I know for a lot of fans who do have those tattoos, they're now reconsidering them, you know, thinking about covering them up, thinking about their relationship to the fandom being differently and maybe not wanting to wear that on their literal sleeve. Yeah. The thing about tattoos is that I feel like tattoos always kind of represent a certain point in your life, right? Like they always kind of represent the point where you were at when you got them. And so I would really encourage listeners who are sort of 
unsure what to do with their existing Harry Potter tattoos, like not to feel like they made a bad choice, like they made a choice with their hearts based on what they knew at the time. We all had very strong feelings. (laughs) I mean, we still have them. They're just different. We still have very strong feelings. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. It's still your magical universe. Yes, absolutely. So, Marcel, I would like you to share as much as you are comfortable with the listeners about what tattoos you have. But I also wonder if we can brainstorm (laughs) some witch place tattoo ideas. Oh my god, this is genius. Okay, yes. Well, I have three tattoos at this point. I have a lovely set of carrots that are sort of bunched together with a blue ribbon on my forearm. And I have a set of like old-fashioned-y kind of Pyrex bowls on my, um, on my, uh, not bicep, but the... Outside arm. My upper arm. And I just, I love them. They're sort of um, like a thicker lined kind of almost folk art in a way, sort of. They definitely have like a Ukrainian folk art kind of Mm -hmm. feel to them. Very beautiful. Yeah. And then the most recent tattoo that I got, it's a set of five paper airplanes that are sort of flying around the set of carrots on my forearm. And they're very cute. And I love them. I love all of your your bunches and piles and stacks. <laughs> that's, and that's true. That's the, there's a theme in my tattoos and it's clusters. <laughs> bunches and piles and stacks. I love it. It's so accurate. How about you, Hannah? You have many beautiful tattoos. I have a lot of tattoos and I always want to get more. I have a whole pile of flower tattoos on my left arm, all of which are flowers that my mother grew in her garden. Mm. And so this arm is very much dedicated to her and my relationship with her and sort of memorializing her. And then my right arm is my feminist tools arm. So it's got <laughs> like scissors and a match and a letter and a knife that's also a carrot. Yeah. You know, like like <laughs> vegans like carrot knife. And I've got a tattoo for my other podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda. I've got a tattoo of the sign-off for that podcast, Pass It On, which is a matching tattoo I have with friend of the podcast, Lucia Lorenzi. We actually have two matching tattoos because we also both have this Two of Cups, which is the tarot card I associate with friendship. And then I have a huge tattoo of my cats on my right arm, a very big, almost life-size portrait of my cats. I love that. The next thing I want to do is get a chest piece. Like I want something right across the top of my chest. So I've got to start envisioning what that will be. So what would we put in a witch please tattoo? Oh, wow. What a good question. I mean, I know that a lot of our original listeners are still really into like a bunch of our like accidental gags and accidental goofs from the original run. So like... Malcoy. How do I do a tattoo of your impression of Michael Gambon <laughs> playing Dumbledore? I don't know how to express that. It would be a tin can or a tiny boat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to a tattoo that is a fan for Malcoy mm-hmm. and a tin mm-hmm. can and a tiny boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, perfect. 
I don't know. Yeah, which please, gosh, we're so much more educational now than we used to be. You know, we used to be like primarily goofs and gags and angry rants. And now we have like substance. So I don't know. <laughs> How do you distill substance into a into a tattoo? I think this is something that the listeners should tell us what they think because they know better than we do. This is a petition to the listeners to send us tattoo ideas. <laughs> And we'll put them all on my body. That's not a promise and it's not legally binding. No, absolutely not. In this episode, as you know from the title, we're talking about pedagogy. So let's start off by practicing what we preach and doing some good old-fashioned revising, re-review, revision, revisioning. Oh, mm, it's revision. So typically in this segment, we sum up what we've covered so far and then start thinking about the day's topic. But today, we're going to do things a little differently. Yeah, that's right, which is today's revision will give us an opportunity to connect our previous topics with Hogwarts teachers and their, shall we say, diverse teaching styles. <laughs> so we started off with an episode about chosen one narratives and the lens of the chosen one helps to explain, for example, why Dumbledore as a character is personally invested in Harry's education at Hogwarts. So he has this sense of Harry as special and bound towards a particular fate, and that constantly informs the choices he makes about Harry's education and, by extension, the education of all the students <laughs> at Hogwarts. <laughs> it's true. We talked about Orientalism and how Orientalism helps us to understand how and why the representations of Quirrell both marks him as a villain by associating him with tropes of untrustworthiness and secrecy and the mystery of far off lands and how his untrustworthiness in turn marks him as a suspicious authority figure signified by his failings as a teacher. Mm -hmm. In the animal studies episode, we talked about the relationship between the animal and the human. This is the first book where we see care of magical creatures as a course and learn about animagi. Is that how you pronounce it? That's how I pronounce it. <laughs> so we'll definitely come back to critical animal studies in a future episode. But in general, animal studies helps us to understand the hierarchies in the wizarding world mm -hmm. and the slippage between who counts as a person and who's treated as a thing. And we can see the slippage in the treatment of Hagrid in book two and Buckbeak in book three, who are both marked as dangerous and untrustworthy others who are always being surveilled by the state. Mm -hmm. particularly via the figures of the Malfoys. Class is another lens that we are going to keep coming back to because an analysis of the class system in the wizarding world cannot help but allow us to interrogate certain practices at Hogwarts, you know, like making students pay for robes and books, as well as relationships between characters. So, you know, Malfoy's disdain for his teachers, Hagrid and Lupin, despite the fact that their positions as teachers should make them authority figures. Oh, yeah, for sure. And trauma is another big connector to how we talk about pedagogy in the wizarding world on various levels. So 
In our trauma episode, we talked about thinking about the impact of trauma on the British Wizarding Society as a whole, including the faculty and staff at Hogwarts, because we realized that, you know, by book three, the Hogwarts faculty are only 12 years out of a major civil war. And that invites us to think about how pedagogy is impacted by trauma, which is not an excuse for toxic and abusive pedagogies, but is an opportunity to think about how trauma shapes the way people move through the world, including both teachers and students. I think we could even think about Lupin's teaching in this book as a model of trauma-informed pedagogy. Oh, yeah, I love that. Definitely. We talked about feminist literary theory and feminism as a critical lens shows us how gender and the intersections of gender with class, race, sexuality, disability, and other matrices of oppression impacts how we read. There are lots of ways to think about the gendered treatment of both teachers and students at Hogwarts. As one small example, we might look at Madame Pomfrey and the gendered care work that she single-handedly provides for the entire student body while being dismissed by the book as hysterical for wanting injured students to rest. <gasps> oh, literally uses that word for her. Just made me so mad. It's cruel. We did an episode about queer theory through which we learned about the ideological centrality of heterosexuality or heteronormativity and the way that queerness, which is positioned as an aberration from that ideological norm, is coded as suspicious and dangerous and unhealthy. Mm. So we've mm. talked about, you know, Lockhart's incompetence being queer coded. But we also talked about queer ways of being that find belonging and community elsewhere outside of sort of heteronormative family structures. And that model of queer love and family, I think, comes through really beautifully in a lot of ways in this book, including potentially Harry's relationship with Lupin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who I read as a queer uncle. <laughs> I love that. Okay. We did an episode about the Gothic. And although the Gothic as a genre may not be able to tell us a ton about pedagogy at Hogwarts, we can definitely think about the setting of Hogwarts Castle in relation to learning environments, and in particular, isolation. And we can definitely theorize Snape's potion classes as modeling the Gothic through pedagogy, because in the Gothic, male authority figures are absolutely not to be trusted. Ever. Couldn't trust Snape less. Absolutely. We talked about disability theory, which is yet another lens we'll continue to draw on throughout the series. We're going to do a much deeper dive into thinking about Lupin and disability. But with respect to pedagogy, disability studies helps us to interrogate Hogwarts professors' teaching methods and what's considered standard for things like homework, exams, workload, etc. We can also think critically about who teaches what at Hogwarts and how ableism informs the representation of various subjects. I mean, we've got to talk about Neville and the traumatic pedagogical experiences he is having at this school. Oh, yeah, definitely. We talked about celebrity. And in our discussion of celebrity studies, we looked at the mass mediation of certain subjects, celebrities, and how that impacts how other people respond to them. We might think here about how certain students arrive at Hogwarts already mediated so that teachers read those students through the lens of that mediation. And the same goes, of course, for certain professors, you know, like Lockhart. And this is definitely something that's true 
in the real world as well, not just for, you know, celebrity students or children of celebrities or celebrity instructors, but also the way that, you know, if you live in a small town and your teachers all taught your parents at high school or your cousins or whatever, and you share the same last name and they know who you are, they may already have ideas about you and the type of student you are based on that information. Small town famous. Ooh. And then, of course, we talked about books, which books, uh, books <laughs> which appear to be foundational to all Hogwarts pedagogy, irrespective of the subject. Mm-hmm. The central role of books in all of these classes really invites us to think about, among other things, the relationship between theoretical and practical learning. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what are they learning from books? What are they learning by doing? What is the relationship between those different modes of learning? We might ask, for example, why it is that Professor Trelawney even assigns a book for her class when she tells them that books are not going to help them. (laughs) Why did you make all of your students buy this book? And basically sets herself up as the sole authority for the interpretation of every possible sign. So it's hard to say. Hard to say what the books are for. Indeed. (laughs) What really comes across as we go through all of these different topics we've covered in the podcast so far is that pedagogy intersects with every single one of them. Ah, yes. Yeah, because pedagogy is fundamentally about the relationship between different humans who are positioned in really complex ways. And what we bring into the space of the classroom as both teachers and learners has a ton to do with aspects of our histories and all of these other dimensions of our culture and the institutions that we're embedded in. So mm-hmm. it becomes a, a wildly complex topic. And like all wildly complex topics, we probably need a framework to help understand it, huh? That's a very good idea, Hannah. Wow, that was a lot of topics to cover. I feel like Hermione having a quiet, nervous breakdown in the library. Maybe we should drop a few of these subjects so we can really focus in on transfiguration class. That's a great idea, Hannah. In this segment, we learn about a new theoretical frame that will help us understand the Harry Potter books better. Today, we're talking about pedagogy. But what does pedagogy even mean? You know, it's a fancy word that we love to use, but essentially pedagogy as a term refers to the way you teach and the philosophy behind your method. Mm -hmm. So it's like the theory of teaching. There are a ton of different styles of pedagogy because there are a lot of different ways of teaching and a lot of different types of learners. But before we get too far into today's discussion, I want to just give a really small overview of the field of pedagogy. We can actually trace discussions about how we learn back to the Greek philosophers. The Socratic method might have been one of the first recorded pedagogical approaches. The Socratic method, for those who don't know, is based on the Socratic dialogues, which maybe you had to read in your undergrad. I certainly did. There are a bunch of dialogues between the philosopher Socrates and different people he's talking to. They're usually named after the person he's talking to. And he's sort of trying to help them understand some philosophical idea better. The idea with the Socratic method is that you can use the sort of cooperative dialogue approach to collectively arrive at greater understanding. 
importantly, this kind of philosophical education was deeply exclusive. In ancient Greece, it was the education of citizens only, which in the case of ancient Greece meant free adult men. And in Plato's Republic, we see that quite clearly differentiated, that there's the philosophical learning, which is for citizens, and it's like this satisfaction of the needs of the soul. And then there's like trade learning, which is like people who are not citizens need to learn how to do these skills because otherwise the republic can't run and somebody needs to make a chair, but making a chair is not a true philosophical pursuit. So we start to get this distinction between, you know, how important pedagogy is early on. And this kind of division between like higher learning and the acquisition of rote skills and knowledge, it continues to characterize a lot of the thinking around pedagogy until like now, like the distinction between liberal arts education and trade education and in Canada between universities and colleges. And it's shaped throughout history by the shifting senses of how capacity for education differs across populations and groups. So the Greeks, as we've mentioned, thought education was just for citizens. Some Christian philosophers thought real education was only for men. Around and after the Industrial Revolution, we've got this idea that education is just for like the middle and upper classes, while the working classes are, you know, sort of characterized as animal-like, as only able to learn repetitive actions that suit them for working in factories. This history of pedagogy has also been deeply impacted by race science, including the somehow still circulating idea of racial IQ. That is the idea that race is a real biological category and that different races are differently capable of learning. That idea is, in case you don't know, made up white supremacist bullshit that has been thoroughly debunked by every credible scientist. There are lots of really interesting pedagogical thinkers we could introduce you to. John Dewey, who's often considered the father of modern pedagogy. Paulo Freire, a Brazilian education philosopher who founded the critical pedagogy movement and believed that the role of pedagogy should be the liberation of the oppressed. Or Bell Hooks, who we've already discussed in our episode on feminist literary theory, and who wrote about education as the practice of freedom. And frankly, we'll probably come back to these folks, because this is a podcast about a series of books set in a school, and so we will probably talk about pedagogy some more. But perhaps the most interesting move in pedagogical theory from our perspective is the emphasis on it being practice-based. That is to say, your theory is all well and good, but it all comes down to what you actually do in the classroom. Because the practice of teaching is a whole heck of a lot harder than the theorizing of pedagogy. Somebody can be an amazing theorizer of pedagogy and then actually encounter a challenge in the classroom and fall apart. So for this, our first episode on the topic of pedagogy, we're really going to focus in on our experience and what Marcel and I have learned from the actual doing of both being taught and teaching. I don't know about you, Hannah, but I've got a lot to say about both toxic and empowering educational experiences that I've had. How about you? What are some of your worst and best experiences as a student? You know, what is amazing to me now as a teacher is that the classes that 
at the time I was really proud of myself for doing well in are now classes that I look back on and realize were organized around fundamentally harmful pedagogical models. Oh no. And a lot of the best teaching experiences I have were not necessarily ones I realized at the time were going to be my best experiences. And so my perspective on sort of where I learned and didn't learn has changed a lot for me. And so I think, for example, a lot about this English class I had in my undergraduate with this professor whose whole attitude was treating grading as a way to punish students and believing that the fact that most students failed out of his class was a sign of his own rigor as a professor. Oh, that's gross. And so in his mind, it was like, prove to me that you are worth getting a good grade on this. And at the time, because my whole sense of self-worth was so tied up with how I performed in classes, I jumped at the opportunity to be like, this person is against me in every way, and I'm going to get an A-plus in this class to prove him wrong. And I was so proud of myself. And in retrospect, I really wish that I had dropped that class. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Hannah, we were very different types of students. I absolutely dropped <laughs> classes like that. Like the, fir- <laughs> the first chance that I had, <laughs> I was like, this one's going to be too hard for me. <laughs> it was a real learning curve for me because I, as a learner, really felt like I thrived under rigor and expectations. I mm-hmm. never handed anything in late. I followed instructions to the T. I wanted models and structures, and I, I really thrived in the institution. And as a teacher, I've really had to learn a very, very small number of people thrive in this institution as it's been designed. And that small number of people tend to be like neurotypical white middle class people. Mm-hmm. And the institution was designed to serve me in all kinds of ways. But I don't want to only serve students who are like me. So I've had to really revisit what I think teaching is supposed to do. And and so in that process of revisiting, I now look to teachers like a teacher you and I had in common in grad school, uh, Dr. Jade Ferguson, who is an absolutely incredible scholar mm-hmm. and also an absolutely incredible mentor and mm-hmm. who is somebody who mentored me all the way through grad school, but in such a low key way that I often didn't notice it. (laughs) But now look back and I'm like, oh, I think maybe everything important I learned, I learned from Jade. (laughs) Maybe she just like low key, like took me out for a drink and then just like laid shit out for me. (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) A big thing that Jade did is like help me understand the politics of the institution. Mm-hmm. which was so, so vital. And I think she was probably the first teacher I ever had who helped me to like take a step back and understand how the university works and why it works that way and the why it is not structurally fair or structurally egalitarian and what it means to actually be part of the university as an institution. And that, for me, has been a really valuable tool as a teacher is that I, in turn, can help my students understand the university so that they can like 
separate their sense of value from how they're doing in this institution because it's like oh it has nothing to do with your quality as a person it's a really (laughs) broken institution yeah yeah and it's not institution specific either it's like the entire process of higher learning is built around a model of discipline and punish to quote Foucault As we love to do. What about you, Marcel? What have, what were some of your standout good and bad experiences? Uh, well, okay. So I did my undergrad at McGill, which when I attended there, McGill absolutely thrived on being the type of institution where it, like the more students who fail, the more it shows that this is a rigorous institution. And it was very much like, you're here to learn. That's what you're here to do. This is how you learn. And if you learn differently, there's something wrong with you. So my relationship to my undergrad is a bit hostile. One of my first English courses as an undergraduate student was with a professor who was, we might say, mercurial. And I don't remember what this encounter was about, but I had emailed her a question, as students do. (laughs) I mean, how dare you? And she replied and told me that this was an abuse of her email and that this kind of question should be addressed to the TA. Now, the TA, it's important to know, had the very unique name, David Anderson. And I did not know what his email address was because there were multiple David Andersons at McGill at that time. And so I had to email her again, as cowed and sheepish as I was, to ask what his email address was. And she replied that she would not tell me because that email address had been made available in class, as in she had written it on the blackboard at some point. And so I was like, cool, (laughs) cool. (laughs) Like, I always have to remind myself of like how hard it is to work to convince students that I am not their enemy Mm -hmm. because they've encountered these other people who set them up like the fucking sphinx, like guarding (laughs) the treasure of education. Oh, God, it's so true. There are, as we've established, a lot of different ways to teach and a lot of different ways to learn. And they don't always necessarily line up oh no (laughs) oh no so to speak yeah but i gotta say once you start writing down the different pedagogical approaches it becomes clear that some types of teaching do tend more towards toxic than do others okay no pressure marcel Mm -hmm. but i'm going to be incredibly disappointed if you didn't make a chart to explain this Give the people what they want is what I always say. I did indeed make a chart. And today's chart is a specific kind of chart with which some of our listeners will probably be quite familiar. Oh my God, I can't wait. Okay. I made a character alignment chart commonly used in role-playing games, but adapted for our purposes for pedagogy. Now, Hannah, you play far more RPGs than I do. Could you please explain to our dear listeners who are maybe unfamiliar what a character alignment chart is? Yes, absolutely. With 
pleasure. So character alignment comes from Dungeons and Dragons. It's a way of identifying a character's relationship to law and order. So it ranges from lawful to chaotic, as well as their relationship to like ethics or morality. So ranging from good to evil. So we've got these two different axes. One is lawful, neutral, chaotic, and the other is good, neutral, evil. Mm -hmm. And those two different axes are plotted on a chart. So there's, you know, nine possibilities, three by three. So you can be like lawful good or chaotic evil, but you can also be lawful evil or neutral good, etc. Mm -hmm. So like lots of other devices in D&D, the alignment chart is basically meant to help out with role playing by giving you a sense of how your character relates both to the existing structures of the world they're living in, you know, do they follow the law? Are they loyal to the king? Whatever. <laughs> as well as this kind of like higher order notion of right and wrong, mm -hmm. right? Are they like, like to save people's lives and, you know, help people out? Or are they like pro murder? I don't know. <laughs> my example of evil so this is good, this like, is good. <laughs> like any other fun device for categorizing people like say hogwarts houses mm -hmm. it's become really popular as a way of sorting all kinds of real and fictional characters so in each square i've described the teaching style that i think most reflective of the corresponding alignment type so like lawful good neutral good chaotic good etc but I think it would probably be really helpful for us to first clarify, like, what do these what do these terms mean? What is lawful in the context of a character alignment? Hannah, could you give us a run through, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're thinking about adjusting these things to pedagogical settings. So in this case, we might think of lawfulness as a, like, belief in the value of institutional and disciplinary structures as pedagogical tools, like people who believe that the threat of failure increases rigor or that deadlines are important for student learning. Traditional exams can accurately measure student knowledge. And then on the chaotic end, we've got like a focus on individual students rather than rules that should apply across the board and a sort of rebellious rejection of institutional norms and structures like, yeah, man, we're just going to like do it. <laughs> That's my cool impression of a cool professor. It was cool. Yeah, I know. It was really good. And, and then between good and evil, you know, we can think about good professors as the ones who are invested in student success, understand what they are teaching and why, and are sort of oriented towards like, you know, thinking about the overall well-being and flourishing of their students. And then on the evil end, we've got people who are like, actively disinterested mm -hmm. in student success, would rather students fail, you know, think that's an indication that they're teaching properly or like want some students to do badly and are sort of like actively out to harm, discourage, shame, or otherwise stand in the way of the learning of certain students. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense to me. So with that in mind, what I've done is I have matched each style with a corresponding teaching method. Then I suggest the characters whose pedagogy I think seems most reflective of this alignment. So let's let's just talk about it. It'll be easier, I think, once we start talking through it. 
All right, I'm ready. <laughs> we'll start with lawful good. So lawful good, I have as a style strict but compassionate. And as an example of a method for a strict but compassionate professor, I have late penalties. So this would be a, I understand that you're having a hard time right now. However, this is the deadline. And if you can't make it by the deadline, you will lose 2% per day. So like consequences, but consequences within sort of clear norms and structures, not like an arbitrary use of power. Yes. And so for this category, I have Professor McGonagall because she is very by the rules. Even in this book, she tells Harry when he tries to get her to sign his Hogsmeade permission form, rules are rules, Potter. But she's sorry. (laughs) It like pains her. (laughs) She feels bad about it, which I think is what makes her lawful good. Yeah, I know. I think I think McGonagall is a really good lawful good example because she is like positioned by the book as one of the good teachers. She's one of the good guys. She's on the right side of, you know, the war between good Mm -hmm. and evil. But she loves rules like she's such a disciplinarian. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. so then we have neutral good. So this would be the kind of professor who prioritizes their students well-being. So this would be a professor who's like, I understand something hard is happening in your life right now. How much time do you need to complete the assignment? That's fine. Have an extension. Please take the extension. And so for this category, I was thinking Professor Lupin because of his ability to adjust his lessons to meet the needs of his students. Yeah. Yeah. I like him as neutral good because he's not chaotic. Like he's got you know, lesson Mm -hmm. plans and a plan for how his classes will actually work and, you know, a sense of a pedagogical method, but it's not, you know, this sort of strict adherence to things, right? Like he's got a lot of flexibility. He's got a lot of sense of the humanity of his students. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So next we have chaotic good. This kind of teacher prepares their students for the real world. So this as a method would involve no grading because there are no grades in the real world. There are consequences, but those consequences need not be attached to an arbitrary letter or number. So the best example I can think of for this category is Professor Moody from book four, which I know we haven't talked about yet, but the reason I think he is a good fit here is because he insists on introducing his students to the dark arts in a controlled environment so that students know what is out there. Oh, I'm torn about who else I would put in Chaotic Good because I think there's an argument for putting Hagrid in here, but... Um, but we can get back to that. We can we can debate further. Yeah, we'll debate further. I struggled with lawful neutral because how I was envisioning this category is the type of instructor who believes in rules for the sake of rules. And this kind of person would hand out detentions for breaking the rules, irrespective of what the infraction is. It's like, oh, you're late for class? Detention. Oh, you didn't do your homework? Detention. Oh, you were talking? Detention. Mm-hmm. It's like, Is detention the most appropriate penalty for anything? I don't know. (laughs) And I couldn't think of a good professor at Hogwarts for this category. But I did think Filch fit this category because all Filch wants is for the students to follow the rules. That's all he wants. Just rules. And 
So even though he talks about how much he wishes he could inflict violence on students, he doesn't because it's not allowed. But if it was allowed, he would punish those students to the full extent. <laughs> he absolutely would. Yeah. <laughs> I also wonder if we might think of Professor Hooch as lawful neutral. Oh, yeah. Particularly in her role as like referee at the Quidditch matches that like she is there to like keep the rules. The whole point of Quidditch is that you have to follow the rules. And, you know, unlike a lot of other people, she's not like, oh, I want the Slytherins to win or I want the Gryffindors to win. She has no attachment to one side or another. She has no attachment to the moral standing of it. It's like Quidditch. You follow the rules. And that feels like neutral to me. Yeah. Like rules are good, but they don't, there's no moral question involved. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So true neutral, I had a lot of fun with. (laughs) So this to me is a teacher who has absolutely zero concern for their students and not in a malicious way, just in the sense that they could not give any less of a shit who their students are. (laughs) What year it is that they're teaching, they've never changed their lesson plans. Absolutely not. It's the same lecture notes that they have been using for 40 Mm -hmm. years. Yeah, absolutely. So like a method that this instructor might use is just a pass-fail system. So it's like, you know, you either pass or you fail. I do not care. The Hogwarts professor that to me most clearly models this alignment would be Professor Binns, because it's unclear to me if he even knows who his students are. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, Professor Binns, like I know that we see people writing essays for his class, mm-hmm. but I feel like his class would absolutely be like a 100% of the grade is the final exam. Yeah. And the final exam is just like one question. And it's like, what do you know about the <laughs> Goblin Battle of 1916? And then you just like write everything you know, and then you pass or you fail. And that's it. Yeah, I totally feel that. Yes. All right. Tell us about chaotic neutral. Okay. So for me, chaotic neutral is a type of instructor who is like, learning can totally be fun. You never know what you're going to get in my class. It's so exciting. Let's do hands-on learning. And it's not necessarily bad, but may not always be the wisest and most appropriate choices. So I have filed in this category Hagrid because Hagrid genuinely wants to extend his knowledge to his students. He really does. But because so much of his teaching style depends on his confidence, he's not a very good teacher. He's not able to like recover from blows to his self-esteem. And so as a result, we'll sort of fall back on flobber worms when his exciting lesson about hippogriffs didn't go the way that he planned. It does seem like Hagrid doesn't have like much of a sense of the learner outcomes he's going for. <laughs> like, you know, as opposed to the examples of the good professors that we have looked at, like they have a sense of, you know, why their students need to learn this stuff. Yeah. And why it's important for them. And Hagrid does just seem to be like, animals are neat. Yeah. I, neat is exactly the word that I was going to use. Like... Hey, everybody get on board. They're neat. Look at this creature. It's neat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, he's undeniably chaotic. Absolutely undeniable. Oh, yeah. Instruction style, extremely chaotic. <laughs> Near death in the first lesson. Absolutely wild. <laughs> he assigned a biting book because he thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. Like, I love yeah, that. That's... But chaos. The biting book is absolutely a big chaotic <laughs> neutral mood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Okay. We got one more row. It's, it's evil time, baby. We are going to talk about some evil. Okay. Our first one is lawful evil. This, to me, is the type of instructor who is a sadistic disciplinarian. This is the type of instructor who genuinely takes pleasure in punishing their students. And a type of method that they might use is corporal punishment, assuming it's allowed in the lawful universe. And again, best example I could think of had to come from a future book. So I've got Professor Umbridge because she adores punishing her students. Like she develops rules for the purpose of punishment, <laughs> which is horrifying. Yeah, she punishes through rules. Like it's, it's textbook lawful evil for sure. So then we have neutral evil. And for this category, I'm thinking it's a professor whose style is exclusively to intimidate students, to humiliate them publicly, because they're not learning. Mm. Instead of pointing out to the other students, oh, look at what this student did really well, they instead point to the students who are not doing well and call them names and make everybody in the class pay attention while they humiliate them and accuse them of not listening or of not being capable of understanding simple instructions and other kinds of hateful bullying and taunting behavior. So you can probably guess who I'm talking about. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Snape. Yeah. He's so bad at teaching. He's extremely bad at teaching. His goal in teaching seems exclusively to like make his students suffer but he doesn't seem to enjoy it <laughs> i mean he doesn't seem to enjoy much every once in a while he smiles a little bit at the thought of like possibly killing <laughs> Sirius black I think that's as close <laughs> as we get to seeing him happy yeah but you're right he doesn't in terms of his relationship to sort of lawful versus chaotic He's obviously not mm -hmm. lawful, like he's an arbitrary disciplinarian in his class. You know, he applies the rules, you know, with deep unevenness because he doesn't actually care about them. But nor is he chaotic. He's just like somewhere, just somewhere right down the middle, but very committed to the suffering of his students. Yeah. That scene where he makes Neville feed Trevor some of his potion. I mean, we will come back to this, but mm -hmm. is there no oversight at this school? Indeed, there is not. <laughs> Unless apparently you get in trouble with the law, in which case I guess Dumbledore will come to your aid. But like in terms of the day-to-day -day bullying and abusing of students. Eh. Poisoning their pets to teach them a lesson. Their pets who we've already determined are their support animals. Yeah. Monstrous. He's a monster things. I hate it here. Okay, we have one last square. This one is chaotic evil. So this one, I'm thinking an instructor who actively endangers their students. They're not prepared. They don't have any intention or plan for their lessons. I'm not really sure what their goal is. They're unpredictable. 
And so the teaching method that I have for this category is negligence. (laughs) (laughs) But like dangerous negligence, not the sort of neutral negligence of Professor Ben. Yeah, exactly. Like, Like active negligence. So you put your students in a situation that you should know they're not prepared for and expect them to succeed or not. You don't even care if they succeed or not. You leave class before it's over. You release a bunch of Cornish pixies. <laughs> yes. Say good luck and bounce. <laughs> Could you take care of this for me? So this is where I put Lockhart because he teaches them nothing and he puts his students in danger. <laughs> I mean, I would suggest that chaotic evil insofar as it manifests as dangerous <laughs> negligence might be the, the pedagogical <laughs> method of Hogwarts as a whole. Indeed. <laughs> there does seem to be a high degree of dangerous negligence towards the students in general. Mm-hmm. But I think more accurately, yeah, I think somebody like Lockhart <laughs> makes sense there. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Oh, my gosh. So for some of these characters, their pedagogical alignment, it matches or is quite close to their character alignment. I think McGonagall, for example, while I've classified her as a lawful good teacher, I think maybe we could make a case for her being a neutral good character since she breaks laws when they're unjust. And Hagrid is definitely a chaotic good character, but, you know, he's not a very good teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So not necessarily a chaotic good teacher, but essentially with the character alignment as pedagogy, what I've done is just tried to separate out the character as we know them from their teaching style. So it's not always going to be exactly the same. I love this. I love thinking about people's teaching styles in relation to this alignment chart. And I desperately want to sort more professors into it. And I think we should do that in the next segment. That's a great idea. I hope you're all ready to turn the tables on the Hogwarts staff, because in this session of Owls, the teachers have become the subject matter. So, Marcel, you've aligned some of our Hogwarts staff, including Lupin and Hagrid, but why not Trelawney? She's another major new teacher in this book. I'm so glad you asked. I actually had a really hard time with Trelawney, and instead of, you know, punishing myself for not being able to figure it out, I thought this would be a great opportunity (laughs) (laughs) to model pedagogy (laughs) or to model this very specific type of chart-oriented pedagogy. (laughs) Uh, And so I thought maybe we could place her together. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk through a few of the more placeable teachers, maybe, and then we can figure out where Trelawney goes. Awesome. We've talked a little bit about Lupin and Hagrid and Snape and McGonagall in relation to the chart, but I think maybe we could sort of pull out a couple of examples, like specific examples from this book about what makes them actually fit into the alignment where I have slotted them. And this would also be a good opportunity to debate if you, Hannah, are maybe thinking that they might go somewhere else. Okay. All right. But I'll never forgive you if you question my character alignment. I'm just joking. Of course I will. <laughs> okay. So I'm with you on McGonagall. I think McGonagall is classic, lawful good. I hear you that sometimes she likes to like bend the rules a little bit in mm-hmm. favor of her house. But at the end of the day, she chooses rules over <laughs> chaos whenever that option is presented to her. Her confiscating the firebolt, mm. I think, is a great example mm-hmm. of that. That she's like, nope, it's a danger. I've got policies for these things. The rules apply. You know, she tries to get it back to him <laughs> before the game, but she's sticking with the rules. Yeah. And that's a great example, too, because she's the one who facilitated Harry's acquisition of his first broom, right? When first years, we are told, are not allowed to have their own brooms. So this is a great sort of mirrored example of where she's like, okay, well, this is a rule that we can bend because it doesn't harm anybody. But this rule we're keeping because this is a rule that's for your own safety. Yeah. And I feel like we see this in her teaching style, right? Her teaching style is very orderly. It's very specific lessons where you're like, you're turning this thing into this thing. And either you did it well or you (laughs) didn't do it well. And either it's a mouse or it's a teacup. And like, there just seems to be like she's teaching a subject that seems like it doesn't have a lot of space for interpretation. She's teaching it in a very sort of like rigorous by the book way. There doesn't seem to be a lot of creativity in her class. Yeah, Sounds like it's really hard. She wants the students to learn. She wants them to do well. But her approach is very, mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. lawful. Yeah. I think it gets more tricky when we start getting into the, like, the neutral space, right? Like Snape being neutral evil. Uh, because, like, he loves giving mm-hmm. people detention. Yeah. Which is a, a lawful disciplinarian kind of thing, right? He's always looking for an excuse to, like, use the rules to punish people he wants them in detention he wants them expelled he wants them like in trouble yeah where he tips towards neutral for me is i think how unevenly he applies that so that's it for me right is that it seems like that sort of desire for punishment is pretty focalized around harry like he doesn't try to expel neville but he does try to expel harry multiple times throughout the series (laughs) and so you know like we've talked before about the books being from harry's perspective and how that really complicates for us like how we're able to you know, interpret the motivations of the crueler characters like Snape. And so it's unclear if Snape just hates students in general and does want them all to suffer. (laughs) Or if it is specifically Harry, who he just is disgusted by. Yeah, he's a tricky one. And if he loved rules, he (laughs) he was like Hermione, who also loves rules. Yeah, but he hates Hermione. (laughs) Ugh. And he's very mean. 
And he's very mean, right? The way he talks to Neville in particular. Like, I think Neville is the closest the text gives us to somebody with, like, a clear learning disability of some variety, right? Like, Neville is frequently positioned as, like, really struggling to remember stuff, really struggling to thrive in the classes that demand memorization and strict following directions, right? All of these kinds of like by the book, point by point kind of lessons. We see him doing much better in classes that have more opportunities for like applied uses of skills or hands-on interactions with things. He does well in herbology, which gives him much more opportunity to like interact with things. And that implicitly has more to do with like making judgment calls and interpreting like how a plant is doing rather than like this very sort of scientific like a b c d kind of rule following Mm -hmm. and so he becomes a sort of litmus test like how teachers treat him is sometimes our best lens onto how those teachers are or are not invested in student success Mm -hmm. because somebody who teaches a class that hermione can thrive in Like, as a teacher, it's not hard to teach the student who sets themselves double homework. Yeah. You know, that doesn't actually demand any thinking about learning or or student well-being. And so, you know, I think in the blatant cruelty and public shaming of Neville that happens in Snape's class, I think we get a good glimpse into the fact that um, fan-loved romantic hero or not, as a teacher he is evil Mm -hmm. right he might be uh, secretly on the side of the good guys in some political ways but like when it comes to pedagogy yeah full evil full evil pedagogy (laughs) so one of the things that I found really remarkable about Lupin as a new teacher is the way that the text tells us how the students responded to his first class. So so the text tells us that they had never had a practical defense against the dark arts before, unless, of course, you count the time when, you know, Lockhart released the Pixies, which was <laughs> not a good example of a practical defense against the dark arts class. No, you got to teach you got to teach people something before you. Just throw, just throw them in. It's like letting a bunch of students out in a science lab and being like, "Do science, <laughs> do it, do it." I'm not going to tell you how. Do it, science. Another thing that is really distinctive about Lupin's method is that he really does give a lot of positive encouragement. Mm-hmm. He calls out Neville by name and says, "Excellent, Neville. Well done, everyone." And I really never thought about this before in this way, but he also cold calls students not to punish them the way that Snape does, (laughs) but he cold calls them to give other students an opportunity to answer questions, which like, you know, so again, if we compare him to Snape, like Hermione always has the answer. Her arm is always up in the air. So Snape just ignores her and it's like, oh, no one has an answer. But with Lupin and Hermione has her hand up in the air and is jumping up and down wanting to answer the question. But instead, Lupin is like, Harry, what do you think? (laughs) Yeah, because he doesn't always want to just 
default to the, the most extroverted student being the one who dominates the space. You know, it really stands out to me that interaction where Snape tells Lupin mm-hmm. to watch out for Neville, which what a cruelty to identify a student to another professor in front of them as being a student who's not going to do well. Mm-hmm. You know, he does this and that Lupin's response is to turn around and say, actually, no, I have a great deal of faith that Neville is going to do great. Mm-hmm. And that just beginning from that attitude of like, no, I think you're going to succeed in this class. So let's start with that assumption that you're going to do great and thrive in this environment and then move forward accordingly. That that, for me, is the real difference, even between sort of neutral and good, mm-hmm. when we are thinking about, you know, what sets Lupin apart as a teacher, is that he's not just like, I'm sure Neville will be fine. He's like, no, <laughs> no, Neville is going to do great in this class. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and he does, right? You know, thinking forward to books to come, like I think Lupin is who Harry learns a lot of his approach to teaching from as well. This idea that like everybody can learn. Some people might take longer. Everybody can learn. Yeah. I was thinking as I was paying attention to Neville and how he is treated in class. And I was thinking about the long term consequences of different kinds of pedagogical approaches and Thinking about that moment where McGonagall is feeling bad because she was mean to Peter Pettigrew and because she thinks he's dead. And Peter and Neville are often linked in this book. And we could unpack that in a lot of different ways. But when we think about the kind of adult that Peter Pettigrew grew into and his kind of fearfulness and desire to be Mm -hmm. dominated by a personality um how much was his getting like shamed and berated by somebody like mcgonagall you know he says she was really hard on him multiple people say he was not a good student he wasn't smart like Sirius and James were like he's repeatedly was obviously sort of set apart as not as good as his friends. And that that attitude is actually beginning to make me want to put McGonagall in a (laughs) lawful neutral instead of lawful good. Like she punishes Neville for losing the list in some very disciplinarian ways. That's true. Yeah. We know that was dangerous. He also didn't do it, as we find out. Crookshank stole it. What a bastard. I love Crookshank so much. But <laughs> she knows that Neville struggles with remembering things. Like, why has nobody put an accommodation in place for this kid who cannot remember passwords and as a result is constantly locked out of the place he sleeps? Yeah, yeah. Not only is there no accommodation, but then when he attempts to hack his own accommodation, as so many disabled students have in the past, because institutions don't serve them, so they just have to, like, figure out their own accommodation. So he does that and then she punishes him. That's true. We'll just slide her right out of lawful good and put her into lawful neutral. 
But I think part of the struggle of lawful good for me is that I'm not convinced that a lawful teacher can be good. (laughs) Yeah, because rules are inherently oppressive. That's why we have them to keep (laughs) everyone in order. But everyone is unique. And so, uh, yeah, Mm, that's a tricky one. Yeah, it is. It is tricky. It is tricky. I mean... It's, there's like a similar trickiness, I think, when we look at a character like like Hagrid. Hagrid totally has the potential to be a good teacher. But this was his first experience teaching. And you know what? None of us are good the first time we step in front of a classroom. We all make mistakes. <laughs> and imagine if you made a really bad mistake your first day of teaching and as a result, the government killed your dog. Yeah. Like... I have really, really messed up some classes. Like, I have really messed up some classes. And I've never had the government seize and execute one of my pets as a result. Yeah. Okay. But, like, this isn't a, this isn't a, uh, this isn't a flawless <laughs> analogy because. How dare you? It's flawless. You didn't bring your dog into class to help you with your lesson and then your dog bit someone because they were mean to it. And then let it <laughs> bite a kid. Yeah, I, I it's it's uh, and this is what brings me back to like Hagrid being more neutral than good is that he has really really good intentions and he really wants the students to get a lot out of his class. I don't think it's even fair to expect him to be a good teacher with the apparently zero training (laughs) that Hogwarts teachers are given. It's amazing that anybody is a good teacher. (laughs) It's it's quite remarkable. Like, you know, he says those talons hurt, which indicates to us that he has been clawed by these talons before. So he's very clearly (laughs) done some like on the ground in-person learning on his own where he's been gored by a hippogriff. And so, like, this is not a great model for how to bring children (laughs) into the world of magical creature care. It does seem in general to be the model through which teachers are chosen, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, on occasion, teachers are chosen for narrative convenience. But for the most part... The sort of credential you seem to need to teach a subject at Hogwarts is is expertise, not teaching skill. And in that sense, it very much reflects a lot of components of higher education, where expertise in a subject area qualifies you to teach it whether or not you have ever thought about teaching in your life. And in fact, there's often an attitude in higher education that treats skillfulness with and attention to teaching as a sign of intellectual unseriousness. That if you care about making your material accessible, then you must be a less rigorous academic. For example, (laughs) you and I. (laughs) Deeply unserious (laughs) academics. Indeed. Uh, (laughs) But you see this with like Snape, right? Like who should not be teaching children, but is repeatedly pointed to as one of the greatest potion masters like he's incredibly skillful at creating these really complex potions and often it seems you know Trelawney Trelawney whose only qualification for teaching (laughs) 
the whole subject area at Hogwarts appears to be she did a prediction once. But as I so ardently continue to argue, all of her predictions do come true. Like, kind of. You know, she does throughout the book make a number of other sort of offhand predictions that Hermione scoffs at and refuses to take seriously, but do in fact consistently hold up. (laughs) I think Trelawney is for the most part just using cold reading skills. Like I think for the most part she is making intentionally vague predictions that people will then feel open enough to interpret and that will in hindsight appear to be true. That's a very Hermione response, Hannah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a real Hermione. This is the technique that like TV psychics use all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you've lost somebody and there's somebody trying to come through to you and I'm seeing the letters R and L and you just keep it broad enough that people will insert their own meaning into those things and that you know like Hermione's whole point about like the thing that you're dreading will come true is like Hermione's right she was not dreading her rabbit dying no no but she was dreading she was dreading the news of course but then that's a self-fulfilling prophecy but when it comes to teaching yeah Trelawney up front makes it very clear that this is a thing you can do or not, and that she can't teach it. Yeah. As a teacher, like, if your only goal in teaching is apprenticeship, where you will actually help to hone and foster the skills that somebody already has, well, then no, you can't teach somebody who doesn't have those skills or abilities. But is there not a theory of divination? Is there not, like, a history of divination that might be useful in terms of helping the students to understand its role and function in society. It appears to be unfocus your eyes and hope for the best. It appears to be the entirety of the divination method. Yeah. Why even have a subject that you teach in a school that is by definition unteachable? Mm-hmm. It's like having a creative writing class and being like, you're either good at writing or you're not. And <laughs> if you're bad at it, I can't teach you. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I think is the way some people teach. So I think I would put Trelawney in between good and evil. I would say she's neutral on the moral scale. I don't think that she is either invested in student success or invested in student failure. I think that she is, for the most part, indifferent to the learning outcomes of her students. Okay. Sounds like she might be a true neutral in the same sense as bins like she doesn't adjust her teaching method to her students i think she edges a little bit towards the chaotic neutral end of things just because of how frequently she predicts the deaths of her own students Mm -hmm. (laughs) which does so a fair amount of chaos in the learning environment yes this is a very good point she has a lesson plan But she will also just shift away from it on a whim because she saw that she was going to. Her, the fact that she had a vision of her own exam. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, "Uh, I had just, I saw that I, that there was going to be a lot of crystal balls on the exam. Is it Ron who's like, you set the exam? It's at that point that Ron's like, I think Hermione might have been right about her. It's like, okay, well, now? Maybe this class is bad. 
Anyway, I would really love to hear back from listeners, not only about where they would put Trelawney, but also like, where would you put Dumbledore and Flitwick and Sprout? Yeah. I think Marcel can maybe share a version of this chart with all of us. Yes. And everybody can do their own professorial sorting. Because, you know, we're just too humble, lady scholars. Mayhaps you have other suggestions for what kinds of teaching philosophies are indeed true neutral or chaotic evil, etc. <laughs> two humble lady scholars striving to be neutral good. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 14 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by ACAST. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel mispronounce your username while I become giddy with delight. Thanks this week to Twin Trainer Ty at Pragmarxist. Uh, thumbs up perfection fingers ea hi lisa and rachel that seems like it was a setup i think that might be a shout out somebody built into the username (laughs) that is some chaotic neutral energy right there um oh no oh this is good okay okay you ready producer this is an experiment owl Owl. Owl. I love this. I love this. You are all (laughs) sneaky devils and I love you. Okay. Okay. We also have thanks to her. Mm. Hi. My guess is Harishi Takis. Oh, okay. Harishi Takis. A Schaff. Danish Trill. Is it like Danish Trill? Maybe? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I'm sorry I did that. Um, e. Maisie, Pippin Lee, and Slappy Yawk. Slappy Yawk. Slappy Yawk? Okay, yeah, Slappy Yawk. Thank you all so much for your five-star reviews and for your experiments in uh, shout-outs and sound effects. It's much appreciated. <laughs> ow, ow, ow. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you. Newly up is a special interview with Neil Barnholden that was so delightful that by the end of it, we'd started planning a new podcast (laughs) together. We can't help it. We're such a good team. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with a whole new focus. But until then... Later, witches!
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.